a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Hey, guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Lord willing, we're going to wrap up our study of Romans chapter 5 today. And if I counted correctly, this is our ninth study from chapter 5, our 30th study since we started our study of Romans in chapter 1. But in the last five studies, we've been focusing on verses 12 through 19 of chapter 5. And as we have seen, it's a very profound, very theologically important part of God's Word. And the main purpose of those verses is to help us understand that our relationship to Christ, now that we are in Christ as Christians, is essentially the same kind of relationship as our relationship was to Adam from the time we were born. 
Verse 12 begins a comparison to teach us that Adam was the head of the human race, and when he sinned, we all sinned in him. Verse 13 and 14, a kind of parenthesis to give us some evidence of that fact. Verses 15, 16, and 17, a second parenthesis that says, in effect, but please don't get it wrong, because even though our relationship to Christ is the same kind of relationship as our relationship to Adam was, there are some enormous differences. So in those three verses, he lists some of the contrast between Adam and Christ. Finally, he completes this comparison he began in verse 12, down in verse 18 and 19. When Adam did what he did, we who were in him did it too. He sinned, he became guilty, we sinned in him, we also became guilty. So all of us entered into this world as descendants of Adam, as sinful and guilty. But, praise the Lord, when Jesus did what he did, we who are in him, we who have received him, we did it too. He obeyed. We became righteous in him. But of course, Paul's not finished. You may remember back in verse 13, he made a reference to the law. Look at verse 13 again. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin's not imputed where there is no law. And Paul, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, all of this is God given through Paul to us. But Paul realized there's a need to explain one more detail here. And it's a detail that he's going to elaborate on much more when we get into chapter 7. And that detail is, what is the purpose of the law after all? You see, Paul was very much aware that there was a great deal of confusion about the law in the minds and hearts of the Jewish people in his day because they had been confused by wrong understandings of the law by their Jewish leaders and teachers. And he knew that many people who had for years had a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law would be feeling very confused at this point. All the truth he's been sharing with them would probably be pretty overwhelming to their minds. They're trying to put all this together. And he knows they may be thinking something like this, Paul, 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 wait a minute. You've made it pretty clear here that the law is not our means of justification. We used to think we could save ourselves by keeping the law, and our mind is kind of reeling from that truth. But you've made it clear. That's just not true. We can't save ourselves by keeping the law. But now, Paul, you seem to be telling us that the law wasn't even given to condemn us. You're telling us that we're condemned already by the sin of Adam. It's really hard for us to imagine just how distressing all these words must have been to the Jews of that day. They were overwhelmed. They couldn't quite put it all together because the greatest thing in the life of a Jew at that point in time was his understanding that the law, the law of God, was an enormous gift to the Jewish people that God had given to them through their great prophet Moses. And now it sounds like Paul might be saying, hey, there's no purpose in the law at all. (laughs) So on the surface, Paul's shaking them to their core of their being. What, What on earth is Paul saying here? So to clear this up, Paul could have put another parenthesis in this passage right after verse 14 to explain the purpose of the law. But, and I'm kind of guessing here, but it's as if the Holy Spirit said to Paul, you know what, there's a limit to the number of parentheses we can put here without really confusing everybody who's reading this passage. So he just goes ahead and finishes his main point in verses 18 and 19, and then he adds a kind of PS to the whole thing, to the whole passage, 
to explain the purpose of the law that he had brought up back in verse 13. So let's read it again, only we're going to pick it up at verse 18 this time. And remember, this is God's word. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, let's look at this in a little more detail. First, notice the words came in. The law came in that the transgression might increase. In the Greek, the word is very similar to the word he used in verse 12 when he told us that sin came in. The word entered is used there. Therefore, just as one, just as through one man sin entered. The Greek word here in verse 12 is acercomai. Acercomai. Entered into the world. And then in verse 20, when we read the law came in, it's a little different. It's par acercomai. But you hear the similarities. There's a, there's a prefix here. The law came in par acercomai that the transgression might increase. The only difference in the words, though, for came in in verse 20 and entered in verse 12 is that here in verse 20, a prefix is added, and the prefix is the Greek prefix para. Verse 12, the word is acercomai. Verse 20, the word is paracercomai. And that prefix para in Greek literally means alongside or by the side of. So in verse 12, he's telling us that sin entered the world. In verse 20, he tells us the law entered alongside. Alongside what? Alongside the sin that had already entered the world. So through Adam, sin entered. It's one of the main points he's teaching here. And through Christ, righteousness and forgiveness entered. He's helping us understand that. Those are the primary truths of this passage. But secondarily, after sin had already entered, the law entered alongside it. And it entered for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is stated in verse 20, that the transgression might increase. That the transgression might increase. Now, he's already made it clear, let's underline this, in the first four chapters of this letter, that the law was never intended as a way of salvation. For example, back in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He drives home that same point in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Now that no one, no one is justified by the law. Before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 21 of Galatians chapter 3, he says, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. But of course it wasn't. It's possible that you may have heard teachers or preachers say at some point in your life 
that God gave Israel the law so that by keeping it, they could be saved. That has been taught even in the church today. But Paul makes it abundantly clear that that's simply not true. That's not the case. He makes it very clear. So what does God mean here when he says the law came in that transgression might increase? That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? The law came in that transgression might increase. At first, we thought, well, wait a minute. Is, is God saying he gave us the law to tempt us to sin? <laughs> well, you know, that's not true. When James said, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So it's not, not that. Uh, the idea that God gave the law to deliberately tempt us to sin is so totally unthinkable, even though on the surface it may sound like that. But he, he, did, he did say very clearly the law really did enter to increase sin. And there are three ways, at least, that it does that. The first way is given back in chapter 3, verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Look at this, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We read it earlier. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He's going to repeat the same idea when he gets to chapter 7, the middle of verse 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So the first purpose of the law is to increase our knowledge of sin. It increases our knowledge of sin in at least four ways. First, it defines sin for us. There's a sense in which we all tend to be kind of ignorant about our sin. I mean, we know we've done wrong. We sin, but we don't think too much about it. It doesn't seem like such a big deal before we come to Christ. So God gives us the law to educate us about what sin is. He's already said this earlier back in chapter 4, verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there neither is there violation. In other words, there's no transgression of the law if there's no law to transgress. And in chapter 5, verse 13, he wrote, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin's not imputed where there is no law. So sin was always sin, but sin wasn't a transgression of the law until the law was given. And then the law came in and defined sin. It defined sin. And then at that point, sin became the transgression of the law. There's a second way that the law increases our knowledge of sin. It gives us an understanding and a knowledge of the real nature of sin and how horrible it is. Each of us has a conscience, of course. We know that. We know we've done wrong things. That's why I said back in chapter 2 that even the pagans, who never even have the law, they have a conscience that accuses them or even defends them sometimes. That's back in chapter 2, verse 15. So we know we've done wrong, but we don't really understand the depth of it, the, the horror of it, the, the really serious nature of sin until God reveals it to us through his law. He's also referring to this concept later on, again, in chapter 7, verse 13, very last part of that verse, that through the commandments, sin might become, look at this, utterly sinful, utterly sinful, realizing how horrible it really is. So when we get to know God's law, we begin to see how ugly sin is, how deep it is, how filthy it is. So the law gives us this knowledge of the character of sin. And in doing that, it increases sin. It makes sin greater. It makes sin more serious. So you see what he's saying? Until we know the law, we're aware we've done wrong. We just tend to dismiss it as kind of a too bad, you know, a regrettable little defect. We know it's bad, 
but we kind of minimize it. But when we're taught by God's law, we begin to develop this sense of horror, this sense of amazement at the terrible power that's entered the world and rules over mankind like a terrifying tyrant reigns over men. And that leads us to the third way the law increases our knowledge of sin. The law shows us what a terrible death grip sin has on the human heart. We are slaves of sin until we come to Christ. The law shows us how sin has worked into our hearts and twisted us and deformed us uh, all throughout, through our, in, in our whole nature. It's, it's twisted. It's messed up. We're fallen creatures. Every person who's ever been born in this world is twisted and marred and warped and defiled by sin. We have a hard time seeing that. The law reveals that to us. He's going to reemphasize this point also when he gets to chapter 7. We'll look at it in more detail then. But the fourth way that the law increases our knowledge of sin is it exposes the incredible deceptiveness of sin. Sin is incredibly deceptive. That's also found in chapter 7, verse 11. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, look at this, deceived me, sin deceived me, and through it killed me. Without the law, we could never really understand how deceitful sin really is. We couldn't see it. But the law spells out for us exactly what sin is. And because of the nature of our hearts, which are so distorted by sin, seeing what it is can actually appeal to our fallen nature and cause us to want to do it. Sin deceives us into thinking it'll be fun. It deceives us. It, just, it, it makes us think it's going to be pleasant. But of course, that's a horrible deception. If you're in Christ, you know that. The fun and the pleasure turn out to be very brief at best, and in, in truth, the sin always brings long-range, utter destruction, misery, death, and it's deceptive. So the law exposes sin's deceit. Those are four ways that the law increases our knowledge of sin. It defines sin. It gives us an understanding of the real nature of sin. It shows us what a grip sin has on the human heart, and it exposes the deceptiveness of sin. Now, I want you to stay with me. <laughs> One of the greatest problems in the world today, and I think it's true to say one of the greatest problems in the church today, is that men do not have a good, proper biblical understanding of sin. We still tend to regard sin too lightly. We can even be kind of flippant about it. We may find ourselves think, saying things like, oh, yeah, sure, I've got my share of sin. Don't we all? <laughs> We all have our little vices, don't we? I mean, yeah, you know, no, there's nobody perfect. And, and we kind of minimize it. There's a danger. There's even a danger in our day that if a preacher or a teacher actually teaches the truth about what the Bible says about sin, if he exposes the deceitfulness of sin the way God does in his word, in his law, the horror of the sin, the destructive power of the sin, there'll be some people who will say, it's kind of morbid. I don't think I like this. <laughs> That guy's so negative. He's never going to attract people to come to this church if we keep preaching like that. It's <laughs> negative. You see what I'm saying? I mean, most everybody will admit, yeah, yeah, we need a little help. We need to be a little better. We, we've got weaknesses, but everybody does. And then we begin to study the Bible, and we realize the Bible teaches us the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the depth of it, the filthiness of it, the horror of it. And it, 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 it has a deep, profound effect on us and the way we think and the way we live and the way we communicate the gospel. 
one of the key characteristics of the great revivals of the past, when many, many men and women came to Christ, is they began to grasp the depth and the horror of sin. They began to realize how awful it is. And it caused them to see the need to cry out to God for mercy. But if we're not careful in our day to try to keep people happy, to try to keep people coming to hear, we will, we will tend to gloss over sin. We will almost seem like we don't have a real understanding of it. And it can, and it does sometimes, lead to a kind of superficial kind of evangelism. An evangelism that leaves out the horror of sin. You know, we can invite people to come to Christ, and we can tell people Jesus is going to give you a better life. Jesus is going to give you an eternal life. And if we're not careful, we'll almost make some people feel like, hey, they're kind of doing God a favor by coming over to his side. <laughs> That's bad. The truth is people can't come to real salvation as long as we believe that sin is not that big a deal. We, we can't think we're coming as good folks for Jesus to make a little better. We're, we're horrifically bound by sin, and it's horrible and destructive, and we've got to see the reality of it. And the law was given to us by God for that purpose, to define sin for us, to give us an understanding of the depth of its real nature, to show us what a grip it has on our hearts, and to reveal the deceitfulness of it. So the law increases transgression by increasing our knowledge of sin in those four ways. But there's a second way the law increases the transgression, and that is it increases our conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit uses the law to bring conviction. It increases our knowledge of sin. It increases our conviction of sin. So as we begin to meditate on God's law, on His commands, on His definition of sin, it begins to dawn on us that when we sin, we're not only doing just a bad thing. No, it's much, much worse than we thought we begin to realize we're defying God himself. We're not just doing something that might hurt us a little bit or might hurt some other people too, as bad as that may be when we hurt other people. We know it's bad to hurt people. But we're doing something that's really an action against God himself. We're rebelling against the very God who created us, the ruler of the universe. We're, we're shaking our fist in his face. We're thumbing our nose at God when we sin. It's God we're sinning against. And we've got to internalize that. You remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, Uriah? And God sent Nathan to convict him of his sin. God gave Nathan a powerful parable of the rich man who had many flocks and herds, and he stole this poor man's only little pet lamb to feed a traveling stranger. You remember that? David was outraged. David shouted, the man that did this deserves to die. And Nathan said, David, you're that man. And God granted David deep conviction and contrition and repentance. And in David's sincere repentance, God inspired him to write the very powerful 51st Psalm. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But let's read a little of it. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You hear his repentance. You hear his contrition there. And then David said something that used to be a mystery to me. 
He said, against you, he's talking to God, against you and you only, I have sinned. And when I read that, I thought, David, how can you say that? You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. How can you say against God and God only have you sinned? It's not just God. You sinned against these little people. You sinned against the Jewish nation. But David clearly understood what we're talking about here today. He knew his sin had deeply hurt a lot of people, including the whole nation of Israel. And of course, Bathsheba and Uriah. The nation was embarrassed. The nation was humiliated. He hurt them. But the sin was against God, God alone. We do the same thing. When we sin, we often hurt other people, sometimes very badly. But our sin is not against them. The sin is against God, God himself. And David understood the most terrible aspect of what he had done was not to commit adultery with Bathsheba. And it wasn't even to kill Uriah. David had violated God's holy will. God, David had rebelled against God himself. It's as if he had thumbed his nose at God Almighty. He'd chosen his own will and his own selfish desires over and against the will of God. And he realized the horror of that. And when he realized it, he became a broken man. And he rightly prayed against you, God, and only you I have sinned. The law of God makes this clear to us. And guys, this truth becomes extremely important when we are sharing the gospel with people who consider themselves basically to be good, moral people. And there are a lot of people like that. They consider themselves to be very respectable. They think, I'm keeping God's law. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm being good. I'm doing the right thing. And many, many people think of themselves as basically good. Of course, we, they're living in a world that will often tell them they're basically good. It's a problem that many kids have. I think I have lost kids at school who see themselves as very, very good kids. They've been told by their families that they're very, very good kids. And there are many, many people who consider themselves good, moral, upright people. And when they hear a message about sin, they may think, that's not me. I'm not guilty of all that bad stuff. I mean, there's some people out there that are awful sinners, but that's not me. I'm a good guy. Some of the most difficult people in the world to reach for Christ are people who are satisfied with themselves already. They feel like they're good moral people. They don't realize what they're saying to God. They're saying to God, God, you needn't have bothered to send your son into the world to die for me. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good to go. I don't need salvation. And it's hard for some of them to see that there's no greater insult to God than that. <laughs> There's no greater sin than that, self-righteousness. These people are a lot like the Pharisees Jesus had to deal with during his earthly ministry. They can listen to sermons. They can listen to the horrible situation in the world today. They can hear about the horrible sins, and they think, that has nothing to do with me. I'm a good guy. And I think the key to getting their attention is try to help them see God. They got to understand what place God has in their lives. God says he's looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. And they're ignoring him. You remember Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And people are ignoring God. 
They think they're good, but they're ignoring God. That's the worst sin of all. We've got to help them understand they're guilty of shocking sin. They are snubbing God. They're ignoring God. They never treat their human friends the way they're treating God. And they think they're being good. <laughs> so the law of God teaches us these things. It increases our conviction of sin. Do you remember when the man came to Jesus asking, which is the first and greatest commandment? It was a common topic for arguing and debating back in Jesus' day. Some people said, well, adultery is obviously the greatest sin. Other people said, no, I think it's murder. You know what Jesus said? He said, the greatest commandment of all, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Jesus is teaching something really important here. Of course, this is from Deuteronomy. But he says, look, before you try to figure out how to love your neighbor, before you try to figure out how to be a good citizen or a good father or a good mother or a good son or a good daughter or a good person, quote unquote, we've got to learn how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. So when we're ignoring God, when our life isn't all about loving God, we're committing the worst kind of sin. The law increases transgression by increasing our knowledge of sin, and the law increases transgression by increasing our conviction of sin. And there's a third way the law increases transgression. It increases our knowledge of sin. It increases our conviction of sin. And, and the third one's really fascinating, but I think you'll agree with me when you think about it. Because what sin has done to pervert us, remember, sin distorts our hearts. It distorts our thinking. The law actually makes it more likely for us to sin. Back in chapter 7 again, verse 5, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, look at this, which were aroused by the law, sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Sin has distorted our hearts, perverted our hearts. And because this rebellion lies in the hearts of all men, the very law of God that tells us not to do certain things can be used by our enemy to create a desire to do those very things. This truth actually provides a pretty good argument for not teaching sex education in schools. It can be disastrous because even if the teacher is saying, okay, here's all the facts, here's all the truth. Now, don't do this. Don't do this until you're ready for it. If you're young, you could get hurt. This, you know, this, what I'm teaching you could hurt you. The enemy will take that command itself and use it to entice the kids to break it. Satan can take the command and whisper to the kids, look how much fun this would be. Look how popular you would be. You're only young once, you know. So, so the law itself, hearing the law, can be an instrument because of the distorted hearts that we have that increases transgression by actually enticing us to sin. It's a little bit like the parent who tells the child, you see those cookies on the shelf? They're for the party tomorrow. You may not have one now. And then he leaves the room. <laughs> yeah. There used to be an old saying we, we used a lot. A little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Well, a little knowledge of God's law, plus a lot of information about the details of sin, can be used by the devil to stir up ungodly desires in us if we don't see the whole truth. There's one other thing that probably should be mentioned at this point. You might call it a fourth purpose of the law. Paul doesn't deal with it here in this passage in Romans we're looking at right now, but he does deal with it in Galatians chapter 3. Let's look at this, verse 22. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, 
we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? The law was not only definitely not designed to save us, it, it never could save us. It was given to us to show us that nothing can save us except our Lord Jesus Christ. The law points us to Christ. It shows us our need for Christ. So God gave us the law to increase our knowledge of sin, to increase our conviction of sin, and to show us that only through Christ can we be saved from our sin. Now let's look at those two verses again. And the law came in that the transgression might increase the knowledge of it, the conviction of it, the practice of it. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's that phrase again, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. Greek is very strong. It means superabounded, overflowed, mighty flood of grace let loose by God. Look at some other translations of that. Grace did much more abound. Grace multiplied even more. Grace has surpassed it and increased the more and superabounded. Grace abounded more exceedingly. God's wonderful grace became more abundant. <laughs> These translators are trying to catch that meaning there. The only way we can exult in this superabounding grace of God is after we've looked deeply at the law of God. And when we've seen the law of God and let it reveal to us the depths and deceptiveness of sin, and we've understood some of the ugliness of the sin, and we're convicted of the horror of what we've done against God himself, then we can appreciate those words, grace abounded, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Awesome. Vicki and I right now are working our way through the book of Jeremiah and our personal devotion time together. And we find Jeremiah grieving over the sin of the people, but also over the false prophets of Israel. And one of the things he said was this. These false prophets heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. There's always a danger for a teacher or a preacher to be tempted to say things that people want to hear that will cause people to want to come back and hear more. But guys, if that causes us to shrink back from telling people the truth about God's law and the truth about our sin, it is unspeakably destructive. And that's what Jeremiah was saying to the people. We need to pray that God would help us to truly appreciate the truth about his law and the truth about our sin so that we can fully appreciate the truth about his amazing, superabounding grace. We have to see the whole picture. Let's do that now. Father, thank you so much for giving us the law. And Lord, it's easy for us because of the weakness of our flesh and the sin that dwells within us. It's easy for us to not really understand the purpose of your law. But thank you, Lord, that you've shown us the purpose of your law. Thank you that you teach us about sin. You give us the knowledge of sin. You define sin for us, and you help us to see the horror of it. 
Help us, Lord, to really internalize these things. Help us to study your word enough that we can see how horrific it is. And thank you, Lord, for revealing to us that we're when we sin, we're, we're blaspheming you. We're sinning against you. We're thumbing our nose in your face and we're demanding things our way instead of your way. We're not being submissive to you. We're in rebellion. Lord, thank you for revealing that to us. And help us, Lord, as we try to communicate this to others. Lord, it's hard for us. We want to be loving. We want to be gracious. We want to be kind, but we want to speak the truth. So help us to communicate the, the, what you communicate with your law about, about sin. Lord, help us to internalize this well. Help us to share it with others well and use your law to bring us to repentance, to bring us to an awareness of the horror of sin and the nature of sin and the fact that our only hope is the superabundant, abounding grace that you give us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us these things. Help us to learn them well and help us to bring you a lot of glory as we meditate on these things, as we live by these things, and as we share them with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.